Guys, we uh, come to a passage of Scripture in Colossians chapter 2. It's very meaningful to me, and it had a tremendous impact on me when I was about 19 years old. And so I want to start out and just do things a little bit different. Everything's been different already. We might as well keep it different. Uh, for the seniors that are graduating, it's not just the seniors. There are some of you that have just graduated college. Some of you that are uh, engaged recently and you're planning on getting married and you're about to go through changes in life. When I was a senior in high school, and of course I'd surrendered to the ministry, I had our, our youth minister was teaching our youth uh, one evening speaking specifically to the seniors. And he said, he told us a, a few things that, that really stuck with me. He said, in the next few years, about the next four or five years of your life, you're going to make about four decisions that are going to set the trajectory of your life largely in order. Now, it's not forever set, but you're basically going to make a decision on whether or not you're going to go to college or you're going to go to a tech school and uh, you're going to make a, a decision on what initial career you're going to follow. Now, that's going to set a trajectory. Many of you are going to make a decision on whether or not you're going to marry. And if so, you may very well make that decision on whom you're going to marry. And that's going to be a huge decision that sets a trajectory in your life. There's two things that stuck with me probably more than anything else, though. And, and uh, one of them, well, one was if you, wherever you go from here, you're going to develop friendships that, and you're going to meet people in this period of your life that are going to have a huge impact on where you go forward from here. And then lastly, and most importantly, he said, most of you, over the next five years of your life, you're going to make a decision on whether you truly are going to take your faith seriously. You're going to decide over the next few years whether or not the, the, the God whom you worship, that you grew up with in this youth group, that your parents appointed you to, whether or not you truly are going to choose to follow him, and you're going to take that faith seriously. All of those basically happened for me. There were a couple key influences that point directly to the substance of today's text, and that's why I want to share this. One of these stories many of you have heard before, and it's, it's, it's hard for me to tell. I was, you all know Susan, I got married young. We got married when we were 19 years old. We felt the, the Lord leading us. I don't want to be cautious with how I say this, but we did not, I, I was not ready to have children early, but we felt that the Lord leading us to no longer use uh, artificial birth control. And I remember going to uh, one of my professors, Dr. Frankie Rainey, and I was upset about that. And his advice was, trust the Lord. If you feel the Lord leading you a direction, trust the Lord. So we trusted the Lord and Katie uh, came along about eight or uh, it's more like 12, 13 months after that. Uh, and so we're walking with the Lord through this process. And you all know Katie's story. Katie, I mean, even Katie was born with a lot of birth defects and a lot of struggles. I want to fast forward just a little bit because this will get to the substance of what we're talking about in Colossians chapter two. Katie was eight, six months old when she went into the hospital to have a catheter placed so that she could have hemodial or peritoneal dialysis done. She was, it was kind of experimental on a child that small. And uh, this was in 1989. Uh, Susan and I were uh, 22 years old. Uh, Katie went into the hospital in January. They placed the tube. Surgery didn't go as well as it should have. Katie got real sick very early, went into ICU. 
miraculously, she came back out of ICU, but she was having some lung difficulty. While we were in, in the room, she was getting some treatments done that caused her to develop some pneumothoraces, some holes in her lung, caused her lung to collapse. It was one of those times when, you know, the nurse hits the button, blue lights flash, crash carts come into the room, it's, and uh, we don't know if she's going to make it moment by moment. They take her to ICU, and she gets settled in in ICU for a couple days, and the doctors tell us that she's stable. It looks like her lungs are going to heal, but it's going to take a while. So as long as Katie's kidneys keep making urine, she's going to be okay. Well, that had never been the problem. Katie's kidneys worked well making urine. They just didn't filter what they needed to filter. So Susan made the decision because it was the beginning of the semester for her final semester of college. She made the decision to go back to Howard Payne University and get started, get her classes lined out. And so she could get going that semester. We'd worked with the president of the university and he was going to allow her to do a lot of her work online and, and remote, which is, this is 1989. There wasn't a remote uh, uh, class where, classes then, but we, we had all that set up. And Susan had only been gone about a day and a half or two days when the doctors come to me and they tell me, they say, look, you're, we've got bad news. Her kidneys have quit making urine. And you're at a place now where any further treatment is may not be prolonging her life. It's just prolonging her suffering. And it's not for us as her doctors to make that decision. You have to make that decision. I want you to think about that. I'm a 22-year-old father by myself at Dallas Children's Medical Center with that decision on my shoulder. And my wife was in Brownwood, Texas. And I didn't want to call her over the payphone and give her that news. So not knowing what to do, tears running down my eyes. I have a brother, Rodney, lived in Carrollton at the time. So I thought, well, I'm going to drive up to Carrollton. I'm going to tell Rodney face-to-face, -face, see if Rodney will go with me to Brownwood. It's going to take us all. We, we won't be there till midnight. That way we can tell Susan personally. Susan and I can call the doctors, make a decision on what treatment they would give her the next morning. But I felt all alone. I walk out of that hospital, come down the elevators from the fourth floor, walk out the front door of the hospital, and I'm walking around the sidewalk headed to the parking garage. I look up, and there comes Dr. Frankie Rainey, the guy that was my Greek professor, my pastor, my mentor. And I looked at him and said, Dr. Rainey, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm teaching a seminar over at Fort Worth at the seminary, and the Holy Spirit told me to come see you. Dr. Rainey and I, I hugged him, told him what was going on. We went up to Katie's ICU room. And, and there were a couple other things that happened there that, that, that stand out so much. Because I asked Dr. Rainey, we prayed together. And Dr. Rainey looked at me and he said, I can't tell you the answer to your question. And I said, I know, Dr. Rainey, while we were praying, the Lord reminded me that I can trust him. I can trust him. Because his spirit lives in me, I can trust the Christ who I walk with to make the right decision. I still didn't know for sure which decision was right. Was it right to ask them to, to try an experimental treatment the next morning? The doctors needed to know by 6 a.m. the next morning. Or was it right to let Katie go? I didn't know. 
But I knew that I knew that the spirit of the living God who dwelt in me would lead me to make the right decision. And I could trust him to make that right decision. We finished there and I, Rodney came and met me and we drove to Brownwood. And I'll tell you the end of the story because I didn't put this on Facebook. And we drive to Brownwood. I called ahead to some friends and said, I, Susan was actually playing cards at a friend's house, picked her up, took her home, told her what was going on. We cried for a while. Our friend showed up from about uh, 2 to 3.30 in the morning. We had a prayer meeting in our little house. We got up from the prayer meeting. One of my friends said, praise God, Katie's going to be healed. And I thought, no, okay, whatever. You know, we'll see what God does. We had decided, I had told the doctors, they didn't hear from me, to go ahead and try hemodialysis on her the next morning. They said she was too small, probably wouldn't work. Uh, she was, gosh, less than 16 pounds, tiny little thing still. We came in the next morning, the nurse met us and was just amazed at how things had gone and how well Katie was doing. Now, y'all know Katie lived another 14 years after that. Uh, and God blessed us with her and through a lot of struggles and a lot of challenges. But I want to point to a couple things. Then we're going to look at the text in Colossians chapter 2. Religion and religious exercise, laws and rules did not bring Dr. Rainey to the hospital that day. The spirit of the living God whom he walked with brought him there that day. Religion had no impact on the peace that I had in my heart, knowing that the, the, the spirit who dwelt in me could make the right decision. My religion or, or, or knowledge, so to speak, I guess, of, uh, of doctrine had no real impact had, had no, it, it didn't give me peace. What gave me peace was a personal relationship with the living Christ. In fact, I, I, <laughs> you may laugh at this, but I grew up in the youth group, and those of you that from back in that day, you remember that us being taught and us teaching to some of you, you've got to have your quiet time. You have to have your quiet time every morning. If you don't spend time with Jesus every morning, if you don't have your quiet time every morning, you're going to have a bad day. And as I begin to grow on my faith, I begin to ask that question, wait a minute, if I'm consistently walking with the Lord and I miss a quiet time one day, what time of night does he wear off? <laughs> does he leave at 2.30 or is it 3? What if I stay up all night? Does that day not count? I had my quiet time on Monday, stayed up all Monday night, so I'm still good until I go to sleep again? When does he wear off? That's where religion leads us. Christ. A relationship with the living God is not dependent upon religious exercise. The man who I learned that from more than anybody else was that man, Dr. Frankie Rainey, who I met at Howard Payne University. Dr. Rainey, this week, went home to be with the Lord. <laughs> and so, as I reflect on his life, what the Lord taught me through him, and I come to Colossians chapter 2, we're going to talk about just in a minute. I see God at work in so many ways. I found out last night something. Y'all are going to, y'all will get a kick out of this. Kevin's heard me tell these stories about Dr. Rainey. He's heard me tell him in staff meeting. I've shared them personally one-on-one, -on -one, this and many other stories about Dr. Rainey. Kevin found out yesterday that Dr. Rainey was his parents' pastor in the 70s when they were at seminary. God's hand 
moving through his people can is transforming. And Dr. Rainey is never going to be famous. He was a humble servant of God. He and his wife, Sue, were living at the Baptist Retirement Home in San, San Angelo for the last few years before he went home to be with the Lord. But what he taught me more than anything else is not to follow religion or rules and regulations, but to follow the person of Jesus Christ. Let me pray, and then we'll look at Colossians 2. Father, thank you that you have given us hope in Christ. Don't let us get caught up in religion or the failures of religion. Lord, help us keep our eyes firmly focused on you, on your Son, on your Spirit, who is at work to transform us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. There's so much in Colossians 2. This is an incredible passage, and and I, I'd already decided I'm going to try to, to simplify the message to some extent to get to the main thing. Read with me, though, Colossians 2, 16 through the end of the chapter. About eight verses. The Scripture says here, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink, or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what is to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. They don't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as though you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All of these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They're human commands and doctrines. And although these have a reputation for wisdom, by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they're of no value in curbing self-indulgence. There's two commands here in this text. There's one in verse 16 and one down in verse 18, and so these are the imperatives that kind of set the structure for the first half of the text. That's going to form the first two major points. And then the last paragraph uh, Paul begins with that, that if statement, the conditional sentence, if you died with Christ, why do you go on uh, living as though you belong to this world? So we're going to look at this in, as the text lays itself out here. And the first point that I would make here from, the, from verse 16 and 17 is this idea that the law is simply a shadow of Christ. It's a shadow of, of Christ who is the substance. He uses a, a command here, and it's, it's intriguing because he says, don't let anybody judge you, or a, another translation that you may have is condemn you. Uh, don't let anybody condemn you according in, in regard to food or drink, a matter of festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. 
that's, a, that's an intriguing command because how can you prevent somebody else from condemning you? You can't control the heart or actions of somebody else, right? There, there's no way that you can stop somebody else from condemning you. And so we have to ask the question, what is Paul getting to here? And, and the idea is he's, he's asking us not to allow that judgment from others in regards to these things to weigh on us, to, to, to concern us. Don't, don't let their thoughts of you, especially in regards of diet, and, and these are two areas that the early church was dealing with that Paul was addressing, diet and religious festivals. Those are things that they like to argue over a lot, okay? Uh, it's it's kind of like, it seems like every generation of churches has what they like to argue over. When I was pastoring at May, I went back and I'd uh, in the library at Howard Payne University, they had some old, uh, uh, all the old association records from Brown Baptist Association. Uh, before there was a Brown Baptist Association, or Brown County Association, there was a uh, uh, Pecan Valley Association that was over all of that. And the first ever meeting of Brown County Association of Baptist Churches was held at May First Baptist Church, and it was in 1907 or 1908. And I thought, well, that's very intriguing. That's the church that I'm, I was newly pastor at as a young man, and so. I dug up those minutes, and it seemed like they spent most of their time in the association meeting arguing over whether or not the association of churches should condemn baseball games being played on Sunday. <laughs> You're talking about the Sabbath. And so there's this argument over whether or not we should play baseball games on Sunday and whether or not we should Go, go watch a baseball game that was being played on Sunday. Was that or was that not a violation of the Sabbath? And the Association of Churches decided to make that essentially a, a, a rule. That was their resolution, that it is, it is ungodly, it is a sin to in play or to go to a baseball game on a Sunday. And it seems like all throughout the history of church, we have come up with our own rules and regulations regarding eating and drinking and festivals and, and celebrations and what, what the Sabbath means and what it, what it doesn't mean. And Paul, when he comes to that, he essentially says, look, guys, all of those things had a purpose to point you to Jesus. Jesus is what matters. He is the substance. All of those are just a shadow. Let me illustrate a little bit this way. I was told as a, as a young man, right after I accepted the Lord as Savior, I, I told my friends, hey, I got saved and, and, and I'm going to get baptized. I said, oh, you're a Baptist. Well, you can't go to the school dance now. I'm like, wait a minute. I hadn't seen that in the Bible. Well, yeah, but Baptist, you can't dance. And I thought, well, well, why? So I started asking around. Well, the reason that Baptist preachers preach that you shouldn't dance was because of what other things went on at dancing. It dances. It wasn't they were condemning dancing. They were saying it wasn't wise. And so what they'd done is they had just begun to extrapolate something that was unwise and to make rules, man-made rules, to the extent where they started to say, well, it's, it, it's sinful for a Baptist to dance. Well, the problem I had with that is Scripture at places tells us to dance in worship to the Lord. And so Baptists who say that they're people of the book, now are making up rules that violate Scripture because of human wisdom. 
it would have been a whole lot better if my pastor would have come to me and said, look, it's not wise for you to be at the school dance because if you go, you get involved in this, 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 and this. Well, scripture doesn't condemn it. Scripture doesn't say you're not allowed to dance. But instead, we just make up rules, right? That's the, that is a struggle with human rules having to do with the Sabbath or having to do with, with our eating, drinking, our festivals, what we could do that we make up on our own. And so Paul is saying, look, you walk with Christ. You obey Christ. Trust him. He's the real thing. The second thing he tells us to do here, and I kind of summarize these two verses by, by a, a, this phrase, obedience is better than sacrifice. Paul addresses this. He says, don't let anybody condemn you. The word that he uses uh, that's translated condemn here in the CSB is a word that can be translated disqualify. It's actually an umpiring word. It's, it's like if the, uh, the umpire calls you out when you're trying to steal second base. You're, you're now disqualified from running to the bases because you're out. Don't let anybody disqualify you. Don't let anybody condemn you based on practices that, that they do who delight in ascetic practices and worship of angels, claiming visionary uh, or access to the visionary realm. Ultimately, one of the things that we see happen in churches is there's people who, who seem to be super religious. And so they will take a, a, a model of wisdom and say, uh, we, should dress, uh, we should dress modestly, okay? And you see this in some Baptist churches, especially old school or fundamentalist type Baptist churches. They'll, they'll say, you know, it is wise for our, our, the, the women in our church to dress modestly. So that means that your dresses need to cover what your needs. Well, maybe they need to cover your calves, well, maybe your calf isn't enough because some men may like ankles, so your dress better cover your ankles, right? And, and you've seen this happen. And so we start coming up with rules, man-made rules, to, uh, to establish uh, our idea of what's right. And what seems right, those people, for some reason, they seem more religious than us. They seem like you know, they're more faithful than us because they're able to put all these rules on themselves. And certainly, here when he talks about ascetic practices, that's doing harm to your body or setting aside uh, your desires and, and, and sacrificing yourself. This is somewhat the idea of a monk who separates himself from everything else in the world and goes and, and drinks water and eats bread and does nothing else for the next 50 years and, and dresses very modestly. And, and, and it, goes, it can go from that, from that extreme to the extreme of actually doing harm to the body, which a Greek philosophy that got brought into the early church and religious practices was this idea that spiritual things are good, physical things are bad. So to get closer to God, we've got to hurt the physical. We, we, we hurt our bodies. Paul's saying that's foolishness. That's not how you get to Christ. You don't get to Christ by ascetic practices. You don't get to Christ by self-denial. Those may seem like super-Christians. You, you those people seem to, uh, to be on a different plane because they're, they're making such sacrifice, but Paul says, you know what they really are? They just have inflated egos. They've made themselves out to be something that doesn't matter. In fact, he has four kind of qualifiers uh, in the text here for these kind of people, he, he says these are people that delight, 
in ascetic practices and worship of angels. So they get all excited about worshiping angels. They get all excited about, about self-sacrificial practices. They claim special revelation. There's a whole segment of Christianity now that essentially claims that, that you are closer to God if, if you have special revelation. In fact, to be a real pastor in some of the movements in our Christian culture, you have to get special revelations. They claim access to this visionary realm. They get these special revelations. Paul goes on to say that they're puffed up. They're inflated by empty notions in their unspiritual mind. But here's the real kicker. They hold on to all of those things, but they don't hold on to the head who is Christ. Christ is the key. Christ is the head. All of the other religious practices, especially man-made rules, that might have a, a, an idea of wisdom behind them, is what Paul goes on to say in the next paragraph. They may seem like they have wisdom behind them, but if they lead you away from Jesus, who is the head of the church, Christ, who is the, the resurrected living God, if they, if they don't keep you focused on Jesus and they get you distracted in all the rules and regulations, you miss the substance. Jesus and Jesus alone is the substance. And then he goes on uh, in the last, the, the last section, he says, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, and this is a kind of a third-class conditional sentence, Paul writing to the church is assuming that they have died to Christ. So if you are born again, Okay. Since you have died to Christ, or died with Christ, to the elements of this world, why do you still live as though you belong to the world? Why do you still worry so much about worldly things if you've died to the world? If Christ is the substance of life, it's in Christ that you're going to find hope. It's in Christ that you're going to not only find eternity, but you're going to find joy, peace, love, and, and all of the fulfillment that comes in life. If Christ is the substance, why do you still act like the things of this world matter so much? And, and, and you submit to these man-made regulations instead of going back to Christ and his word and his word alone. You know, I, I get myself in trouble with Baptists every once in a while, and I've got three degrees from Baptist universities and seminaries. Because I'm, I'm not that worried about what Baptist tradition or Baptist history has had to say. I'm a little bit more concerned with what does Scripture have to say. Because Scripture is the Word of God that points us to Jesus to Christ alone. Paul gives us three reasons in the last section to focus our attention fully on Christ and not on the rules and regulations of this world. First one is this, these regulations are temporary. Christ is eternal. All of these kinds of regulations about whether what you eat or drink or, or you know, whether you dance or not or whether you play cards or dominoes on Sunday, all of those things are just temporary, right? There may be wisdom 
in some of the man-made regulations, but if they point you away from Christ, they certainly have no value and they aren't the substance of what matters most. He says, all of these regulations, verse 22, refer to what is destined to perish and is being used up. Even the Sabbath, the idea of a, of a weekly Sabbath is going to perish when we step out of the, this world into the presence of a living God. Our, our, our food, our, our enjoyment, our entertainment, all of, the, all of the things of this world are temporary. Christ is eternal. Second, these regulations are mere human commands. Paul says some of these might have been founded on Scripture, but they're human commands that have been built up to try to guide you. Focus on Christ, because the substance will be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And, and then he goes on to say, look, these regulations, uh, really, if, if, if all you're doing is trying to obey the rules and regulations, line up the do's and don'ts of Christianity, those don't prevent you from sinning anyway. They don't get you any closer to Christ. You, you, can, you can line out what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do, and you can obey all of those rules, and all you've done is tried to, to clean up your flesh to be more presentable to God. Christ is the substance. And so he, he says here in verse 23, they have a reputation for wisdom because they promote self-made religion. You think about some of the things I've talked about, wearing skirts past your ankles or, uh, you know, not going to a baseball game on Sunday or, or not, you know, gambling at the horse track or, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, the, the old struggle with do we have grape juice or do we have wine in the communion cups? Uh, because we as Baptists say that, you know, all alcohol is a sin, and yet Jesus turned water into wine. Regardless of what percentage of alcohol, you know, you want to argue from Old Testament or New Testament times is in there. We, Any time that we, we make a man-made rule, it may have some wisdom in it or it may have an image of wisdom, but, if, but the truth is found in Scripture. The truth is not found in the man-made rules that may have a, a, a semblance of, of wisdom, a reputation for wisdom, but really what they're doing is they promote self-made religion, false humility, and sometimes severe treatment of the body. But here's what Paul's saying. If you, you, you find somebody that makes up all of their rules, that they, they've, they're, they're trying to uh, now develop all these rules of how to obey the Sabbath. They're trying to obey, all, you know, they set up all these rules of, of what you should do and shouldn't do in Christianity or in religion. You have taken Scripture and you've placed extra biblical rules on top of Scripture and you've made a man-made religion. Paul says that is not only unhelpful, but it is dangerous because man-made religion points you to man and the things of this world and not to Christ. One of my favorite Dr. Rainey-isms that I would laugh about is he said when he was a young pastor, he, he wanted to be like those old fire and brimstone preachers. And he practiced, and he had some preachers that he would, he would listen to, and he would practice preaching like they did. And one of the things that was popular for him to preach against back in the 70s was smoking. 
And so he talked about God did not intend you to smoke. Tobacco is a sin against God. If God intended you to smoke, he'd have put a chimney on your head. Dr. Rainey said, I found that the more I preached against smoking, the more I'd see the smokers in the congregation starting to get the jitters. And they couldn't wait to get out to the parking lot and light one up. He said, God got a hold of me, and I quit preaching against sin, all of these rules and regulations, and I started preaching Christ. And he said, I had one old truck driver come up to me, and he said that he wasn't in church regular. He was there when he was in town, but because he was a truck driver, he was out of town a lot. He was a long-haul trucker, and he said, this old truck driver comes up to me and shakes my hand when he's going out the back of the church, and he said, uh, Pastor Rainey, I, I want to thank you. Uh, I haven't lit a cigarette in six months. And Dr. Rainey said, really? And Dr. Rainey said, well, that's great, because Dr. Rainey didn't preach against smoking anymore. He said, you know what? You've been preaching the importance of Jesus, and, and as I focus my attention on Christ, I want to be healthy. I want to live a long life for Christ. And he convicted me, and I took those cigarettes that I had, I threw them in the trash, and I haven't touched one for six months. Even when I'm out on the road and I'm tempted, I just look to Christ. He's become my answer. See, self-made, when we preach and we focus on the rules and regulations, it's almost like that old adage of, if I were to tell you, whatever you do in the next 30 seconds, don't think of a pink elephant. Your mind immediately sees a pink elephant. If I stand up here and I preach against sin, I can preach against smoking and drinking and dancing and dominoes and whatever else. I can preach it, whatever Baptists want to preach against. And, and so, some of you, it just makes you want to go get the dominoes out and go find a 42 tournament you can get involved in. But if we focus on Jesus, he is the answer. And we walk in a relationship with Christ. He transforms our lives so that we begin to live a life in his image. And we look a little bit more like him every day. It's not about the rules and regulations. It's about Jesus. In, one of the, in response to one of the posts, I made two posts about Dr. Rainey on Friday night after I found out he passed. And there's two of the stories, and one of them I've told you today. But there was a, 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 I say young lady, she's not young anymore, she's my age, because I went to Howard Payne with her. Of course, seen her since college, so I think of her as being in her, in her upper teens and 20s. She was a year behind me in school, and, and she tells this story, and I'm just going to summarize it very quickly. She said, Dr. Rainey was very special to me as well. So the Lord uh, got my attention when I started attending uh, my freshman year at Howard Payne University. She said I'd, she believed she was a Christian. She had, she had been saved and been baptized. But through a series of events, uh, her freshman year at Howard Payne, and part of it having to do with Dr. Rainey, she said, I came to the understanding that I knew all of the rules and was pretty good at following them, but I did not know him. I knew all of the rules, and I was pretty good at following them, but I did not know him. She tells the story of a, 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 one of our upperclassmen, Craig Miller, who was preaching on a particular uh, uh, after, I guess it was our morning uh, services, their chapel services at Howard Payne, and God got a hold of her heart then. Right after that, Paul Blizzard, another young man that I've told you all stories about, Paul Blizzard has uh, served as a missionary in Vietnam. He, he's been a pastor in West Virginia. He lost a seven-year-old daughter waiting for a liver transplant. Her name was Jenny. And uh, 
Lynn, uh, Deborah writes that uh, when uh, she came into class that morning in Dr. Rainey's New Testament class, they, every week they would pray for Jenny. And Dr. Rainey had to give them the bad news that day that Jenny had passed away. So in that class, she said, I couldn't hear anything else. And Dr. Rainey taught the class, and when he got done teaching, everybody got up and left. And Dr. Rainey came over to sit down in front of her, and she was just weeping. And she said, she told Dr. Rainey, I don't know Jesus. I need to be saved. Dr. Rainey took her hand and asked her if he wanted her, him to lead in prayer or her to pray, and she began to pray. Confess Christ as her Savior. Now, this is a young lady who was had gone to church. She'd been at a Baptist church for years and knew all of the rules, had been baptized and went to Baptist school. She knew all of the rules and she was good at following them, but she did not know Jesus. I want to get your attention for just a moment, seniors in particular. Deborah was a freshman at Howard Payne University when God got a hold of her heart. She'd been in church for decades. She'd grown up in church. My question for you is, do you truly know Jesus? Here, You know the rules. Some of you have been baptized, and some of you are pretty good at faking it. You're pretty good at following the rules. But I want to challenge you to examine your heart. Do you know the person of Jesus Christ? Do you have a relationship with him? Are you walking with him? Do you know or have you heard, uh, or been a part of one of those stories where God intervened like he did in Dr. Rainey's life when he called him to come meet me at seminary? Those don't happen from religious experiences. Those kind of real-life experiences only originate out of as you walk in a personal relationship with the living Christ. The question I ask you, and this is the question I ask for the whole church, is do you know the rules? Are you following the rules? Are you doing a good job at following the rules? But you'd have to confess, I don't know him. Because all of man-made rules in the world don't matter. Ultimately, self-made, man-made Christianity is no different than self-made, man-made agnosticism or atheism or Hinduism. Self-made, man-made religion is of no value. Our hope rests squarely and only in the person of Jesus Christ. If you know the rules and you know your religion and you're good at faking it, you can go to hell just as quick as somebody who doesn't. Jesus and a relationship with him is the one and only answer. My prayer is that if, if you're getting ready to go off to college or, or wherever you are in life, that you don't leave this church saying, well, I learned the rules from Brother Dennis. I learned good doctrine from Brother Dennis but I don't know Jesus because all that doctrine and all of those rules are worthless outside of a personal relationship with the living Christ. Do you know him? I said it a couple weeks ago when I preached Colossians 1, 27. 
our only hope of glory, our only hope of being the men or women that God's called us to be is Christ in us. He makes the difference, not our religion. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.